something different than I would normally do. You know, I'm in the middle of a Nehemiah series on how to build a life. We've been focusing on this Old Testament figure of Nehemiah and this whole quest of his to build, to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And we've been talking a lot about that significance. But you'll notice the title of the message is Rebuilding Walls and Returning Prodigals. And that's because what I'd like to do in the time that we have together is I'd like to take this, these two amazing pieces, the story of Nehemiah and the account of what he was used of God to do, and we're going to sort of move along with that narrative. And then I'd like to juxtaposition it with what, in my mind, is the, is the greatest of all of Jesus' stories, the greatest of his parables, at least for me, it is. It's the one I love the most. And the irony is that the parable of the prodigal son is really just a, a part of a larger parable. A parable was a story. Jesus used story to teach, to uh, open up principles in ways that, that sometimes just talking about something in a didactic format would not necessarily have the same effect. Because you all know, I think, we, we love stories. I mean, we're, we're kind of hardwired in our DNA to learn from stories. Stories engross us. We can suspend our disbelief and get lost in a story, lost in a book, lost in a film. And, and that's just part of how we're made. And Jesus knew that. And so he told stories as a means of opening up people to have a new perspective on truth. And probably his greatest story, again, is this, this amazing declaration, this story about a, a lost son, a lost boy. And um, that story, though, was told really as a final part of a three-part story. A lot of times we think that the parable of the prodigal son was a standalone. It really wasn't. It was actually the third piece of a three-piece story, like a triptych, a two, three panels in it. The first panel had to do with a lost uh, sheep, and the other one had to do with the lost coin, and then the third one was a lost son. And then even people who've talked about the lost son said, really, it's not just a parable about a, a, parable about a lost son, it's a parable about two lost sons. And so there's this amazing story. What I want to do is I want to read it through. Then I'll go back, have us go back into Nehemiah's account. And then what we'll do, if the Lord willing, is we will blend these two, because I think there's an amazing connective. We'll blend the two of them and sit with the principles that I'd like us to cont contemplate and consider today. So, you know, it's kind of with, with that in mind, let's go ahead and read through Luke 15. Again, this portion. And we're not even reading the whole story. We're just going to read a portion of the parable of the prodigal son as a means of just laying it out as a foundation point. But when he came to himself, now Jesus is talking here. He's told the story about a lost boy or a son who asked for his inheritance. He went to his father. Jesus said, said you know what? I just can't live here anymore. I need, I need you to release me, but I need you to do more than just let me go with a blessing. I need you to give me my inheritance ahead of time so that I can really live my life because I don't want to live here anymore. The implication was it bores me. I need to experience life. And it says that the prodigal, who's, prodigal means the wasteful, the one who squanders, right? It says he went to a far country, and in that far country he lived it up. He was living the party life, and he, was, he had all kinds of money, and he was spending it left and right, and he had all kinds of people, a new crowd that he was hanging with. And that's the picture Jesus gives us until he gets to a point where he starts running out of money. And he runs out of money, Jesus says, at a most unfortunate time because it was at a point when the economy was moving into a downturn. And in fact, he says, a famine hit the land and people could barely find work. And that was the worst time to have no money and to have the, it, really a very little means of providing for yourself. It says that finally the, the young boy got a job, this son got a job working at a pig farm. And for the Jewish audience that Jesus was speaking to, 
there, there was no greater indignity than to work with pigs. So Jesus is really saying, he, he went to the lowest of the lows. And then it says that, that prodigal even envied the pig's food. The food. He said the pigs are eating better than I'm eating. He was so hungry, uh, barely surviving. That's the picture of abject you know, poverty in a way, just totally lost, beaten down, crushed by life. It's in that place Jesus says this. So this is when we read. He says, but when he had come to himself, he said, how many, he starts thinking, how many of my father's servants have bread enough and to spare? And, and here I am perishing with hunger. No, I will rise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. And, and, and then it says, and he arose and, and he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, the special one here, bring it over and kill it and let us eat and be merry and celebrate for this my son was dead and he's alive again he was lost but now he's found and they began to be merry and celebrate and then Jesus says but that's not where the story ends now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and he heard dancing and he heard the celebration and so he called one of the servants and he said what do these things mean what's going on here and he said to him, didn't you hear the news? Your brother, your younger brother, who's been gone all these years, your brother has come, and, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the special fatted calf. And, and then it says that he was angry, and he would not go in. And therefore, Jesus, as his father, actually went out and tried to plead with him, please come in, son. That's the story. The reason I want us to think about this, because here's why. Here's the connection. This is about the restoration of a broken, lost son. Nehemiah is about the restoration of a broken city that has broken walls. It has no sense of security. Remember we talked about how a city without walls lived in continual vulnerability, how they were always, in a sense, at the mercy of being plundered. Okay? Keeping that in mind, let's now drop back, the, drop back into the account of Nehemiah. This is where we've been in the past few weeks. Nehemiah, again, is someone who had been working in the, in the king, with the king of Persia. He uh, is given this amazing opportunity. He says God's hand did it to go back to his, his, the home of his ancestors, to travel to Jerusalem as a means of helping the city with the rebuilding project of a wall. It's his desire and passion to see that city's situation addressed so that they can have the security that a wall and gates would bring. It's his burden, it's his passion, it's what he wants to do for God and for his people. Keeping that in mind, again, just throwing up a map to just give us a sense of where Jerusalem was in relation to where Nehemiah was, he makes this long journey from what is today modern-day Persia and would have been then as well, uh, Persia, all the way to Jerusalem. You can kind of see it very much in the world news today, still at the center of everything. Uh, let's, let's pick up here. He says, so I arrived in Jerusalem... Three days later, I slipped out during the night. So he gets to Jerusalem. 
His, the supplies and are behind him still. Nobody knows why he's there. He arrives in Jerusalem, and it says that I slipped out during the night, and uh, I didn't want anybody to really know what I was doing or what I was there for. So neither the people he had come to help, the citizens of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, nor the oppressors who had been sort of running the, that region uh, and would have been very disturbed, as it says, when they heard about, they were disturbed when they heard about Nehemiah's potential coming to help change the situation. Nobody really knew what he was up to. That's the point. He says, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I hadn't told anyone about the plans that God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. They didn't know why I was there. And when I started to investigate, he says, I, we didn't take any pack animals with us except the donkey that I was riding. And look what he says. And after dark, I went out through the valley gate. You can kind of get a picture here of, this, of the ancient city. He says, and after dark, I went out through the valley gate past, he describes the jackal gate, over to the dung gate, he describes, to inspect the broken walls and the burned gates. And then, and then he says, I went to the to found gate into the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't even get through. There was so much rubble. So though it was dark, I, I decided to go up the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting, inspecting the wall before then I turned back and, and re-entered again at the valley gate. And you know, he says, the city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had, I had not yet even spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. He says, I didn't tell anybody what I was there for. I just wanted to see and get a good picture of exactly what um, the challenge was. You gotta understand is that Nehemiah, remember we talked about this last week. We said the value of discerning, the value of, of assessing the value of using discretion, the value of seeking to understand a situation before we react. There, even though Nehemiah's entire journey is predicated on, on faith and on courage, on a belief that God is with him, at the same time, what we see is he models for us how to approach challenging situations in life. Even while we're asking God to help us, there is a sense of wisdom and a, a way of looking at a situation. One of the things that's pretty clear here is Nehemiah is taking his time. He wants to look at the challenge. He's never seen Jerusalem before. He actually has never been there. He, there was no technology that allowed him to see a, a picture of it. No, everything that he had been told was described to him. He had never seen it with his own eyes. He wants to look. He wants to see how bad this really is. He looks around. He's trying to see, well, maybe some of this we can actually reuse. Or what part of it has the materials that were started, they started to build and they just left it. We can build on it. What stuff has to be completely removed? He wanted to get a big picture of what was going on. In fact, the entire, um, you know, sort of example that Nehemiah gives us is someone who is trying to assess the landscape. He wants to know, okay, who's in control here? How's this thing? Well, who's running this situation? Who has the most to gain? Who's in control? What's the morale like of the people? Where's their heart? How are they feeling about God's promises over them? Do they have a desire to even see the situation change? What about the wall itself? It's pretty, it's awful. It's worse than he thought. Again, he shows us the advantage of long thoughts. Now, I, I'll tell you, we live in a culture in our modern context where we, have, we are immersed in short thoughts and short communications. It's a way of life. Some of us have become particularly adept at short communications, and it's just part of the way in which we live our lives. Here's the problem. To really grow, and not just in terms of our you know, thoughtfulness um, in, in, in intellectually, but to really grow at a soul level, we have to be able to think long thoughts. 
that, that one of the <laughs> huge advantages of technology is that it gives us the ability to do things in ways that are stunning and amazingly time-saving. And yet, at the same time, it creates opportunities to waste our time in ways that you know, we would have never thought possible as well. And it just kind of drift off into, into places. And um, before long, what was meant to save us time to make us more efficient uh, or more effective, and the two are not always the same, right? The idea is that a lot of times, you know, efficiency is doing things right, effectiveness is doing the right things. And the idea is that sometimes we can use uh, uh, technology, but it, it, sometimes the question is, is it really using us? And, and, and I think sometimes it, we are presented with a challenge. Listen, listen to me, because I've, I've thought about this a lot. One of the real challenges of an era like ours is we're not really learning how to, how to think long thoughts and, and pray and contemplate and um, carve out time to really weigh things out in deep, rich conversation. So much of what we do is quick and short, and it's, it's very kinetic. We're on to one thing, to the next. And I want to suggest that the soul is deepened when there's space to really think well. It's not just having faith. It's having time to really process out. It's one of the I think, by the way, in the, in the coming years and decades, there will be a premium on conversational communication skills, that high touch will become even more important than it is now because less and less people will be trained how to do it. And this means we're going to have to work harder at relationships because so much of it is done anyway. And now I'm really, I'm, I'm okay, all right. I, I need to come back around here, all right. Let, let's go back to Nehemiah, all right. Let's, let's go back here, this long thinker, all right. He says, now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. So the first, so you know what Nehemiah's assessment is? This isn't good. This is not good. It's like we were looking at a situation in our own life. We're assessing it as honestly as we can, as clearly as possible. We look at it and we go, wow, this is worse than I thought. He says, listen, he says, look, we are in trouble. This needs to be dealt with. He says, Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. You know this. I'm going to ask you right now. We need to change this. Let us rebuild this wall. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this, this disgraceful situation that we're living in. He says this. He says, then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me, about how my conversation with the king went and, and how he had been with us. And they replied, at once, upon hearing his encouraging report, again, Nehemiah refuses to be negative. He stays in a positive place. He stays optimistic. He says, look, it's bad. I'm not denying it. We're in trouble. It's not good. But God is with us. Let me tell you how he's with us. Let me tell you why I believe he's with us. And let that, let that stir us to a point of responsiveness because God's hand is with us. And they say, let us then, yes, yes, let us rebuild this wall, they say. And so they began that good work. Notice, though, here it is, this, this continual theme. As soon as they start to do this, there is the rising up of opposition. Remember, we talked about this. Whenever we seek to get breakthrough or to improve a situation, certainly at a spiritual or a character level, we are going to get resistance. It is going to come. Breakthrough, building things does not always come easy. And this resistance is immediately, we're told that there are three men who step up and emerge out, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And they scoffed contemptuously at, at them. They, they spoke 
poorly of them. They decried what they were trying to do. They questioned Nehemiah's motives. They said, what are you trying to do, rebel, change the order of things? Who are you? Who do you think you're doing? Who gave you this authority? You'll never get this done. They begin to minimize it. It's going to keep coming up again. People speaking against it, people working against it, trying to stop the breakthrough from happening. They were, this is what Nehemiah says, though. He says, you know what? Let me tell you something. He says, the God of heaven is going to help me succeed. He's going to help us succeed. It's not about you. It's not about you. He said, God of heaven is going to help us succeed. We are his servants. And we'll start rebuilding this wall. We're going to build this wall, this wall of security around. In their case, it had to do, again, with security and safety. And he, says, he basically says, God, he tells these, these opponents, he says, you have no share, no legal right or historic claim in Jerusalem. He makes this point to them. Now, here's the deal. Let's take these two, two accounts. Let's merge them together. What do we have to learn? I think there's some important stuff. Number one, I'll just kind of throw this out there, that there are going to be times in life when we can no longer be at peace. And I, I debated upon whether you're throwing this word in, unhealthy status quo. I think there are times when we have to be, sometimes we have to wonder, is it even okay to be okay with the status quo? But there are times where we're going to have to challenge an unhealthy status quo. Think about it for a moment. You look at this, there, there, there come moments where we have to address something that is less than what it should be. That, that, think about Jerusalem. They had become accustomed to living in a completely vulnerable place. They grew, they grew at peace with the rubble and the refuse around them to, to such a degree that, that they, we would say that they, to use our terms, we would say they had become at peace with the dysfunction. They had essentially said, yeah, you know, Nehemiah, it's true. You know, you know it's not the great, but this is, this is you know, we, we adapted. We've adapted. You know, it's okay. Uh, but Nehemiah, I said, well, how are you guys okay with being sort of like always under the thumb of these guys? And they said, well, you know, every now and then it's a problem, but we, you know, we work with the situation. But don't you understand? Don't you have a desire to clean this place up? to set up your own security lines, as it were, so that you're no longer just able to be plundered. You can begin to build things in peace and believe that um, you're going to be okay in the long haul, that the, you can start having business in a whole different way. Don't you want to change this? No, you know, we're, well, you know, we just kind of, it's, it's been the way it's always been. It's amazing to me. It takes God having a man to come in there who's a catalyst. Nehemiah becomes a catalyst. Catalyst changes something. He's like a spark. And it's, it's like God, is, God has someone come and basically he says, look, don't, God doesn't want you to live like this anymore. Stop. We need to change this. That this is, you, you are God's people, but this is not his will for you. We need, to, we need to address this situation and change it. You understand? That's what he's saying. He's telling him. We need to rebuild these walls. We need to change the equation. You're okay with something you should not be okay with. This is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. You need to change it. You need to think about it. There was that, and there's that moment, right? It's the same thing with, when you look at it with prodigal son, right? In that, in the, where, where there's this moment. Where does it say? Where the, that first phrase, but when he came to himself. Interesting, Jesus said. When he came to himself, it's almost like well, he wasn't himself. It's like all of a sudden, it's, it's just a, there's this moment where he goes, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Look at me. And that, when that moment comes, it's hard to say, but there was a point 
where all of a sudden it's like, it's like, what am I doing? Why am I settling for this? Why am I, why am I okay with this, this mud and this stench that I'm finding? I'm not okay. What am I doing? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't want to be here anymore. That's what he says. I'm going home. I'll go back home. And I won't even ask him to let me be his son again. I'm just going to ask him if I can have a job. This is crazy. Do you see, see what I'm saying? There's these, there are these moments. How do I say it? There are moments in life where God will speak to us. And I've had it happen to me as well. Where he'll say, that might have been okay, but it's not okay now. And you need to change this. And I'm going to help you. You need to build something up that hasn't been built. This area, it's no longer acceptable. We're going to have to work a different way. You see what I'm saying? It's got to be. My plans for you are better than that. Come home, rebuild. You see the point. But there's, this, and this is the second piece here, there's a big difference between making a decision, right? And we'll just kind of put this up there. That's the second one, between aspiring to do something and actually going to work. And we talk about this, it's like, how would I say this? In, in, In prodigal story, I call it the gap between verse 18 and 20. There's a huge difference. There's a big space between I will arise and he arose. I will arise and he arose. It's the space between yeah, you know, I need to do something about that at some point. And actually doing something. A lot of times, this is where th- things die between 18 and 20. Things die there. It's like, I know I should do something about this. I know God wants me to do. I'm not happy with this. But then, are we actually going to do something about it? That first step. It's one thing for them to say, we will build a wall, Nehemiah. Yes, we are with you. And then... Next day, you're going to be up in the morning to come meet me at the wall because we've got to go to work. That, that is a big difference between, between saying we're going to do it and then actually getting down there and doing it. There's a big difference between I don't need to be here anymore. I'm going to go home. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home. That's what I'm going to do. And then actually taking a step. And we often talk about how that step may, may, is huge. That's why... That's why a lot of times we say, well, I know God's calling us. What are we going to do? That's why we talk about getting into a group, signing up. I'm using little examples. Committing ourselves, stepping across the line, getting our name on the board. You know, we, we've been talking about what's happening just parenthetically with the whole, our whole church and our community and how we've been inspiring and inspiring, but now we're doing. And there's that moment where you've got to do. You've got to step out. And then some of us, we're being asked to step up. Step in, sign on, get involved, get connected, be known, pray for one another, be accountable. It's one thing to say, I should, I should, I should, and it's another thing to go, to take a step. And all a step really is, is falling forward. And, and, I, and I get, there are going to be times where God's just going to say, look, I, I just want you to start moving in the right direction. We'll get there. You, but that's such a hard thing to build that wall. We'll never get it done. Anymore. You know how much stuff is. Yeah, you know what? We got to start somewhere. Let's start. It's a long way home. Yeah, but I got to start. We start moving in the right direction. Thirdly, let's remember this, and this is also there as well. 
not everyone is going to show up. Not everyone is going to be pleased with our desire to move forward. You think about in Nehemiah's case, it's so obvious, right? There were people who were very displeased. Now, you know what's interesting? Nehemiah's name means comfort. It's an interesting name because Jesus said, that's one of the names. Jesus said, you know, I will send my spirit to you. The comforter will come to you. It's fascinating. That's why a lot of times people say Nehemiah is a reminder of like God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, there to help us rebuild the walls of our lives. It's a picture of God's heart for us. But there will be people who will resist, don't want to see it. Nehemiah's case, it was obvious. There were real people there who did not want to see them get better. I was thinking about it. That's an obvious one, right? But in the case of prodigal, there's also someone who's not happy. It's his brother. And it's what happens when he comes home, right? His, brother, his brother's disturbed because it's not right. It's not right. What are you talking about? What? He's back, I got that, but what did you say father was doing? Well, he, he's having a celebration, and, he, and, he got, and you're not going to believe it. He got the, the fatted calf. Now we go, okay, you know, but it's like the special one. <laughs> know that one? Yeah, he's having that one. And he's going, the fatted calf? Yeah. That's right. He's saying your brother's home and we got to celebrate. And he says, that's not right. That's not right. I'm not going in. And Jesus says he was angry and he would not go in. No, I'm not going in. You're telling me he comes back. He demands everything. He gets all his money. He cashes out. Father gives it to him. I'm here working the land, doing my duty, faithful. I didn't go live it up out there. I didn't, and you know what? And now he's come back broken and messed up with nothing. And, and, and we're supposed to throw a party for him. And I'm supposed to go in there. He goes, I don't have any. Where's my party? <laughs> and part of me goes, I understand your hurt. I understand your hurt. But Jesus' point was, it's not about justice. It's about my love and my grace. And in many ways, this is a multi-layer story. Not only was it a story that reminds us of the heart of God, but it was a reminder also to the Pharisee who was having a hard time with Jesus' reaching out to the broken people. And they were like saying, what's he doing? And Jesus just sets it up so beautifully. He says, you don't understand grace. You don't understand grace. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. He loves the broken. And that's all of us, if you really think about it. You know, in Nehemiah's case, there were people who, who you know, wanted to keep them sort of stuck in their bad place. It was almost like they liked the arrangement the way that it was. I mean, you know, I was, and I found myself going back in time in my mind's eye when I was just a teenager sitting in the congregation and I was watching another pastor and he was up here on this platform and he had a, his hands, and he was an older man in his 70s and he had his hands on a big, wooden, imposing podium. A lot different than my little flimsy <laughs> music stand. And I remember that man was my grandfather and I remember 
him talking about how he said, you know, and he wouldn't tell too much about his past because he said he was ashamed of it. Every now and then something would shoot out. And I remember him saying, yeah, when I came back to the Lord, and he says, the people I was hanging around with, my, my friends, he said, they said, don't worry about Brisbane, he'll be back. This is just some, a phase. He said, but he says, I never went back. And he said, you know, the Lord changed his life, and when he did, he changed it around radically. And he was never proud. He, he was like, he never would talk about, he just remember. He, you know what, it, it, what I remember, see, he would remind me, he said, don't ever, ever forget the grace of God. And I don't think he ever forgot it. Always walking with that sense of, of what he had been and how that affected him in terms of how he treated other people. So no one could really fail enough to, to escape the love of God for him. He says, keep reminding me that I'm a recipient of that love and that forgiveness. So who am I to hold it back from someone else? Because we're all, in a way, we are all prodigals. Some of us are just, <laughs> it's more clear than others, right? We've come home from a far country. How beautiful that is. I thought about that prodigal came home and he blessed me. And then he blessed, and then we get to bless others and so goes the kingdom. You will bless people. We all, we share in this story. Anyway, the, the, the point, and this is, the, this is the, the, the fourth one, is that God's desire for us, be very sure about this, is wholeness and his life. No question in my mind. Think about in both of these cases. In Nehemiah's case, he says, look, God wants you to have a wall built so that you're secure, you're safe, you're no longer having to live with the constant paranoia of being plundered. God's will for you is blessing. Remember that, people. He's called us to address this. He doesn't want you simply to live in a continual sense of depletion and struggle. He has a better plan for you. And think about the prodigal, the same thing. What is it a picture of? The, Jesus says, you want to know the heart of the gospel, watch the Father. Because it's about a God who can't contain himself when he sees his lost son coming home. What does he do? He, he runs to him. He doesn't just kind of say, oh, there he is. Well, he'll have to come back on it. No, he runs to him. And when he gets to him, he doesn't say, hey, good to see you. No, it's like he just takes that boy and the picture Jesus gives us, rags, thin, smelly, and he just throws himself and envelops him and says, I love you, son. I kiss you. He, he says, my son is home. Who was lost, he's been found. Who was dead, he's alive. We're going to have a party. That's what he does. And it's great. And Jesus is saying, this is the heart of God. He gives everything. He will give himself to be broken so that the broken can be made whole. There it is. And, and then what is the last thing we learn here? I'm going to leave it with this. Is that the power that we really have is not in our own selves. It's learning how to fix our focus on God. Now, we get that theoretically, but it's the truth. When we're really contending for breakthrough in our life, let us remember, Nehemiah doesn't say, you don't know who you're messing with. I got authority and I have power. You know what he says? Listen, the God of heaven is with us. The God of heaven. I say, well, what, how does that apply to the prodigal? I'll tell you how I think it applies for me. When prodigal comes back to his father, he doesn't say, your son's back home. I'm here. He says, I'm not worthy. I, I, I believe it's, I'm not worthy. I, 
I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm not worthy to be called your son. All I'm asking you to do is if, uh, if you would give me an opportunity to get a job, I will be a hired servant in your house. And it's like, get up. You're my son. And I love you. And and you know what his challenge is at that point? His challenge is not, I need to be given back everything that I lost. It is, will you accept my embrace? Will you accept my forgiveness and my love for you? Will you receive it? Will you surrender to the embrace of the Father? And, And you know what? I think he says the same thing to every one of us. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And I love you. And I've given everything for you. Receive my embrace. It is, all, it is the heart of the gospel. And because of that, you know what it tells me? I want to serve you, Lord, not because I'm afraid. I want to serve you because I love you. And if I'm doing something that's going to hurt you, I don't want to do it. And I'm opening up my life because I want to be a good son and I want to be a good daughter. And want to honor the one who loves me and has given everything for me. I receive your embrace. And it means that even when I stink and when I smell and when I stumble and when I've, when I've made a mess of things, I know you want me home where I belong. And I'm not going to stop contending to build that kind of a life. With your, with your assistance, Lord, I will do this. Let's pray. Lord, I want to, again, I want to ask you to keep working in our lives because I know you love us. And I know that because you gave everything for us. You gave everything for us. You went all the way. And you don't ask us to die. You just ask us to live for you and to pursue a city whose builder and maker is God. Build us into the people who are comfortable in that city, who can be in that place, Lord. Remind us that we are beloved sons and daughters And we've been loved by you, and therefore we are to share this good news with other people. The broken, the beaten, the bruised and the wounded, yes. And those who just don't know which way they're going. Pursuing all the wrong things with passion, but empty nonetheless. Remind us, Lord, that you called us to be ambassadors of your household prodigals whose hearts have been touched, never ever forgetting our own need for the grace of God. And then I ask you, Lord, to keep working in our lives because we're going to get off course and we're going to stumble. We're going to wander. We got it in us. It's in us, Lord, to do it. Call us back where we're supposed to be. Challenge us to grow, to build well, to be a blessing. Speak good words, benedictions over us. I ask this, Lord, in your name. I pray that you just bless this closing time of ours, bless our time of giving, bless this song that we share together as a point of acknowledging what we've shared. For home is where we belong, with you. So I ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for our time together, Lord. Amen. Amen.